Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, a shelf isolation special. Before we get started, I'd like to tell you about something exciting that you can do this week if you're as delighted as I am about the fact that bookshops are finally now open. Our listeners in the US might be aware of the Instagram campaign, hashtag Blackout Bestseller List. The goal is to get as many black voices into the book charts as possible. If you can, you need to buy two books by black writers by June the 20th to take part. I'll be buying two books I've been longing to read, The Girl with a Lauding Voice by Abby Daray and The Blessed Girl by the Quip nominee, Angela McCulloch. Now, on to our guest. This week, we're looking down with the author, journalist and broadcaster, Sally Hughes. Whether you devour her Guardian columns or her books, Pretty Honest, Pretty Iconic and Our Rainbow Queen, and they've become your Bibles, you'll know that Sally is extremely witty on the subject of being pretty, and that she's fiercely well-informed about pretty much everything. This is because she's one of us, a total book addict. We talked about book prizes, the sweetness and strangeness of reading a friend's memoir, and the book that changed her as a reader. And that last one will really surprise you. But have you been reading at all in these times? I'm finding it extremely difficult to read in a way that I hadn't really anticipated. So when it started, and we had no idea how long we'd be locked down, I mean, we still don't fully know. But when it started, I thought, okay, well, I'll read a book a week or two books a week or whatever it is. And um, that will be my thing. I will be productive. I will read, read lots. Of, what I've found and what lots of people have found is that it's incredibly hard to focus and concentrate and get lost in a book. And I'm sure lots of people are doing it brilliantly, but I also know lots of people who aren't, who would normally not find it that difficult. And I'm one of those. Um, however, pleasingly, fortuitously I've always known in the back of my mind that very soon I'm going to get the long list for the Gordon Byrne Prize which I'm judging and so I will have no choice but to read those books when they arrive I think they're due in a few days to arrive at my doorstep and at that point it becomes work and it becomes a deadline and I think I'll be okay then because someone is telling me I have to read these books by a certain date and write a report on what I think of them all but it's it's a corker it's it's my dream you know I've, I've judged lots of book prizes um, as many writers have but this is the one I'm most pleased about because it's absolutely my kind of book you know it's it's gritty and real and kind of unique 
journalistic voices and it's in in the name of Gordon Byrne who is just one of my all-time favorite writers so I'm really really chuffed to be doing it and I feel like it will also do me mentally the world of good at this time. Do you have any comfort reads or books that you go back to not necessarily in lockdown but generally? Yeah, I mean, I feel like in the past few years, it's become such a kind of cliche amongst female journalists. But I promise I've written about this for many, many years. That Nora Ephron's Heartburn is my book. And I'm glad that everybody loves it because it's just a testament to what a real kind of warm bath and fluffy blanket it is. Um, it's just been through everything with me, that book. It's been through my divorce. It's been through friendship breakups. It's been through motherhood. Just for it, for the kind of one woman in Britain who hasn't read it, it's about a woman who um, finds out that her husband is cheating while she's pregnant and he's cheating with the opposite of her, the physical opposite of her. Um, and he is a journalist, she's a writer, it's based on Nora Ephron's own marriage to Carl Bernstein and it's just the story of how she gets through that horrific time and it's funny and it's full of food recipes and it's it's full of jokes of course because it's Nora Ephron and there is no finer book and I do feel that whatever mood I'm experiencing can be enhanced or soothed by sitting down with heartburn. It's also a really quick read, you can get through it so quickly, you can sit there on a rainy afternoon and just bosh through it and emerge with a smile on your face. I love that. I think especially if reading is not, you know, one's favourite or it is hard to concentrate. I think that knowing, you know, you've got a small investment. I'm a bit like, I'm terrible with films. I'll watch anything if it's under 90 minutes. But if I know it's going to be longer than like, oh, I might not like it. I'm just going to watch nonsense um, instead rather than commit. But I did just read a book that I thought was Ephron-esque. And this is a writer that I didn't know very much about. And I'm utterly obsessed and I read it in one go um, on Sunday and I haven't stopped thinking about it it's called Happy All The Time by Laurie Colwyn I don't know if you have come across it. okay so I haven't come across this except that Lucy Mangan I think it was who's a, one of my best friends Lucy Mangan told me I had to read it because she felt I would love it it's my sort of book and it might not be everyone's sort of book because really very little happens it's um a very intimate study it's set um in new york eventually i think in the 70s and it's about these two men they're third cousins but best friends but more like brothers and it's about the women they fall in love with and how they make those relationships work and how they combine their families and it's so slight but so tender and vivid and real and it's got that humor it made me think about another book i love which is less but another book i just read a proof of um but it's a food memoir called Everything is Under Control. It is by a writer called Phyllis Grant and it's a memoir with recipes. I'm writing this down because I I know that that's going to be for me. Phyllis Grant, the writer, was um, trained as a dancer, but how she falls in love with cooking and works in these sort of terrifying, intense, rigorous commercial kitchens and brings the rigour and the discipline of dance to that world. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, because both dance... And food and catering as a profession, each of them is often compared with the military. It has that sense of structure and camaraderie and you are relying on people to not let you die. And so it's that kind of thing. So it's interesting that she's combined those two things because they are quite complementary in a way. It's true, I think, at that sort of going into a space where there's there's rules and a way the universe functions. But if you follow those rules, you will be looked after. Yeah, have you read, it's part review, part essay, um, there's some Nora Ephron criticism where she writes about 
growing up in California and her own, what she calls her Dorothy Parker complex and coming to New York. And I think being, it's really a very, very sad review because she says something, there's an amazing line that's something like, the trouble with being Dorothy Parker is that even Dorothy Parker wasn't very good at it. Yeah, and and it's funny, it's funny with Nora Ephron because, so I've read pretty much everything that Nora Ephron's ever written and she's really uh, self-deprecating, as you know. Whereas someone like Joan Didion, when Joan Didion talks about Nora Ephron, she says, you know, the level of professionalism and hard work was absurd. You know, it just absurd. And so Nora Ephron liked to give across this idea that she was just this, this kind of wannabe who, who could kind of take the bawdy jokes from the guys at the newspaper and all of that. But actually, her level of professionalism, by all accounts, was just insane, that she would graft harder than everybody else. She would get more into her copy than anybody else. She would not take her talent for granted in any way, which isn't to say Nora Ephron wasn't incredibly talented, but also she kind of built her talent, which is more honourable, which is more impressive. She kind of built it from a grain of sand. I love that about her. Have you read Delia Ephron's novel, Hanging Up? I think it was recommended to me by former guest the podcast, Caroline O'Donoghue. It is a work of fiction, but her portrayal of the sister who is obviously Nora is not like Nora's portrayal of Nora. So I haven't read that book, but I'm very curious to know um, what you mean by that. So how so? Well, I think it's, you know, really what you were saying that as I think sort of someone in her writing could be sort of, you know, self-deprecating, but also someone who I think was very, you know, it's like Wallflower at the Orgy, being invisible and watching and reporting. And then in um, Hanging Up, she is very sort of you know alpha and dynamic and glamorous and taking charge and the one who is both you know never attending family functions because she's sort of very very busy and has lots of things to do but also is like secretly you know paying for dinner before everybody else has sat down and it's um and I think you know to be fair that's being in a family and that's knowing people isn't it that your idea of yourself what you see when you try to see yourself and how you are seen are two very different things yeah, and also you slot yourself into a family dynamic. You you know, you may know in your heart of hearts that you're not quite that, but that is the place you occupy within the family. And that can be really different. You know, my my place in my family is very different from my place in my own family that I've had myself, which is very different from my friendship group and so on. And and I think that's I think that's fair enough. And I think also I think kind of Nora Ephron knew it was funny to be self-deprecating you know if nothing else even though she was a million other things if nothing else she really understood jokes and she just got lots of she got lots of mileage out of being self-deprecating and slightly um making out that she wasn't as together and polished and impeccable as she clearly was Joan Didion on her who obviously was one of her greatest friends says that it was just astounding, you know, that she put everybody else to shame, which I can well believe, because that copy doesn't happen by accident. On that family theme, do you have any favourite families in books or families that you like very much not being a part of? Any utter horror shows that spring to mind? I love The Family in Hotel New Hampshire. I, no, I don't um, know that book. Oh, Tell me about I think it. you probably really like it because you're quite interested in big, rambling, messy, elastic families, aren't you? <laughs> Not to cast dispersions <laughs> on you. But you know what I mean. to no one. <laughs> so it's a book by John Irving, 
um, who you may know from Prayer for Owen Meany and those sorts of books. And I, I don't love all his books, but I really loved The Hotel New Hampshire. And um, it's the story of um, a very eccentric, strange, messy family of many siblings who live in a, in a hotel. And um, it covers lots and lots and lots of themes, some of them quite racy. Um, and it was adapted into a film with Jodie Foster and Rob Lowe. <clears throat> it's a terrific film, actually, as well. Um, but I love their family. I suppose I never, because I'm from quite a messy, complicated, chaotic family myself, as much as I um, maybe fantasized about being in a very ordinary, structured family, in fact, whenever I get close to that, it feels so alien to me that I feel a bit suffocated by it. And so I'm... I'm actually instinctively, I think I know in my heart of hearts that I can only really deal with slightly bizarre family setups. And the family in Hotel New Hampshire is that. Yes, I can't, I can't relate to kind of nuclear families, but then they so rarely exist in books and quite rightly, you know, who cares unless there's something weird going on. It's true. It wouldn't be a very entertaining book. Yeah. If everything is very normal and straightforward. And, you know, and even in Little Women, yes. there's envy, isn't there? Even in Little Women, where they are the most lovely family in the world, there's envy and there are, you know, and jealousy and there are various themes going on. I was just going to say that. And something that I loved so much about the film was everything that happened with Amy and Joe. It wasn't like, you know, one-off incidents and you think of, you know, oh, the book burning. and the, But actually, it was a very, I thought, interesting and sensitive you know, I think the way that women are expected to connect and the way that sisters are expected to connect, it's like, no, you've got humans here and it's always going to be odd and strange and complicated, no matter how good these people are on their own. Yeah, and there's also a theme in the book that doesn't quite come across in the film, and I absolutely love the film, but there's a limit to how much you can ram in a film, of course. But there's a theme in the book, I think, that you start to pick up on, especially as you turn into a woman rather than a girl where you see there's this real theme of um people pleasing and denying yourself for happiness of others you know there's this thing where we must help the community we must do this and and of course those are good messages but there's a degree to which those girls are expected to forfeit what makes them happy um in order to be good citizens and good women and good siblings and good parents um, I'm trying to think of books that I've read because I think I do really gravitate to sisters because I have so many, but um, books about brothers. I think that's why I enjoyed the Laurie Colwyn so much um, because it's I really like writers who can look at those sort of, you know, what that dynamic is like because it's not something I've witnessed firsthand. It's funny because um, I have four brothers and so books like Little Women, The Virgin Suicides, books like that, I have absolutely loved them and gobbled them up, but haven't really related to them in any way, which is, or, or in many ways, which is fine. I don't need to relate to lots of things in a book to, to really, really love it. I love those books. Whereas I do relate to things that are about brothers. So one of the most life-changing novels of my life and one that I've passed on to my son. I think it was one of the first really big, chunky blockbuster adult novels I ever read was The Godfather by Mario Puzo. It's a perfect novel. It's so, it's so gripping and it's so entertaining. It's, it, it's a fantastic, fantastic story. 
but it's about loads and loads. It's a fraternal book. It's about um, biological brothers and, and professional brothers. Um, and I found it more, it, it wasn't that it was, it's necessarily more immersing, but I connect to it in a stronger way than to something like Little Women or The Virgin Suicides or something that's very much about sisterhood. I love those books, but I feel like I'm peering through the window at it. This is fantastic because I don't think anyone has mentioned The Godfather on this podcast before. Ah. I've never read it. You've made me want to. When did you first read it? Can you remember how you got your first copy? Yeah, so um, I think I was round about 12 and my older brother, appropriately enough, David, had been reading it. Um, I think we, I had seen the film. We loved the film. And um, he was reading the novel, which came before the film. It's not a novelization. And um, he finished it and said, I think you'll like this. And I started reading it and I stayed up all night for two nights running. until, And it's a chunky mofo, like it's a big old book. And I just steamed through it. It's so amazing from the very, very first page. You cannot put it down. It, some cliches are cliches because they're true. You just cannot put it down. Um, and yeah, I was about 12. It was totally age inappropriate, but that was very much a theme in my childhood. Uh, nothing was appropriate for people of our age, ever. Nothing we watched, nothing we read. It was never, ever, ever age appropriate. And so um, it seemed perfectly fine to me to read The Godfather at 12, just like it seemed perfectly normal for my dad to give me Gordon Burns book on the Yorkshire Ripper when I was 10. Um, and I loved that too. And I can't, I can't explain it. Um, and I know that it would be deemed absolutely awful by lots of people. And I understand the reasons for it. But my father knew me and knew that I'd be very intrigued and interested by it and not frightened by it. And, and I'm glad, I'm glad he gave it to me. It made me kind of fall in love with, um, with crime as a theme in books, fictional and non-fictional totally totally wrong don't buy it for your kids but what can I say I'm glad that he did do you read much crime now yeah yeah so I suppose the thing that has stayed with me since childhood with books is the real love of true crime cults conspiracies and those sorts of things and it's actually it's been a real constant and I think my father really implanted it as an obsession but I, I accepted it readily and so I suppose podcasts have, have become such a big thing now true crime podcasts that I do listen to lots of those but there's nothing quite like you know sitting down with Truman Capote's in cold blood or um I've, you know I read up a lot about Scientology and <laughs> I read a lot about cults crime conspiracies and investigations there's something about unraveling things that you're not allowed to know about that I find I love a cult I love a cult and I don't know that I've read any good cult books have you read an education no and do you know what that's been on my list for about you know when you know you're going to love something and you're just always knee-deep in proofs you know I will get to that but I must do it I really must I feel I could say with some confidence that you will really enjoy that because it's really brilliantly written. But also I don't have to, um, I, it doesn't have to be brilliantly written for me, but it does have to be a brilliant story. 
if it's not really well written. Um, yeah, loads. I, I read uh, Leah Rimini's book last year on Scientology. I also really loved the book about the um, Australian food blogger, Belle, who lied about having cancer. I do, you know, I, I find things like that quite fascinating. I think there's something, because it is quite certainly with Belle Gibson, I can feel my sort of salacious antenna going, Mah! I'm doing a, I'll describe to the listeners, I'm, I'm making antenna with my fingers. <laughs> We've got to that point in the day. Um, but I wonder, I like to think anyway, that it gets something out of my system. It's a way of sort of exercising something about myself that's quite unpleasant, a sort of a, a grubby craving. If I can read it, then it's taking the edge off. Yeah, and I'm, I, one thing that I've always felt is that very few people are all bad or all good, right? But everybody else, everybody's on a kind of continuum, everyone's on a spectrum. And I'm often very interested in things like the Bell Gibson story, because I want to know what happened, what happened to her that warped her sense of reality to a degree where she thought that was okay, where she thought it was okay to tell everyone that she had cancer and she thought it would be okay to take money for that and she thought it would be okay to tell people that if they ate a certain way that they could be cured. Like, what happened? So I'm kind of quite interested in her past and I suppose that's the theme. I just like to pick it apart and see where something short-circuited and we ended up in this utterly mental kind of place. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Sally soon, but for now I want to tell you about the book I fell in love with during lockdown. I think I've mentioned it a little bit on the podcast. It's called Tales from the Colony Room by Darren Cofield, and it's published by Unbound. There is nothing I love more than an oral history. There's contradiction, snark and gossip, with the contributors bitching about each other live on the page. 
and this is one of the most brilliantly bitchy books I've ever read, but it's tender, funny and sad too. It's about Francis Bacon, love, fame, friendship and Soho in the 60s, and booze, and lots of booze. If you have any interest in 20th century art, I think you'll like this. If you simply love the idea of wasting an afternoon in the back of a pub chain smoking, you will eat it up with a spoon. This book is so much fun that it really ought to give you a hangover. That's Tales from the Colony Room by Darren Caulfield. Now, back to Sally. Have you read, just, it's not a cult, but it sort of is, um, The Disaster Artist, the book about the room and Tommy Wiseau? Uh, no, but I love The Room. I haven't read that, actually. Um, and I haven't seen the film either because I love the film so much, obviously, in inverted commas, but I love the film so much that I was a bit kind of... Um, I, I didn't want it to become too self-aware in the film. It's hard to explain. I kind of didn't want, I didn't want the irony of it laid open. Everything is so postmodern and ironic now. I kind of wanted it to just be left as a beautiful thing, if that makes sense. But a book, the degree of separation a book would give me appeals more, I think. So I do, I think I would read that. What I loved about that book is that I think Tommy Wazo kind of ran that set like a cult and, you know, we all know there was no talking to him. But what is fascinating, truly fascinating, is that it should never have worked. It should never have happened. But somehow, some way, he was able to make a film which required getting quite a lot of people on board with that. And money. Yeah. And money. Well, that's the bizarre thing. Nobody knows. He, he seemingly had it. We don't know how or why. There are, there are theories in the book, but I think... It's and it's also it the book really does acknowledge how the film is you know beloved. That's the thing about the room. You do love it. You do leave it with a bit of love for Tommy, don't you? And you don't really know why. And um, there's no there, there's no material reason for your affection for him, but you have it nonetheless. Well, the book is it's a real hero's journey or an anti-hero's journey. It's someone who all he wants is to be an all-American movie star, and he goes about it in the most convoluted, ludicrous, insane, you know, a way that should never have worked, but he does, to achieve his end goal, does all of these other impossible and extraordinary things. So, no, I, I think you'd enjoy it. I know what you mean about the film yeah, and that. I'm up for that. Flat I'm up for that. Other than the, the books on the, on the shortlist that are secret, is there anything that you're looking forward to reading this year? So two days ago, ago, I got the Andre Leon Talley memoir from HarperCollins. Um, so that arrived um, from Fourth Estate two days ago, and I'm so giddy. I just know I'm going to devour it. And in fact, I've had, I've had work to do, and so I've been scared to pick it up because I know if I pick it up, it'll be game over. Uh, so I, it's called The Chiffon Trenches. I mean, it's a very pleasing title. Uh, so I'm very excited to read that. I am also very excited for other people, although I finished it. I'm very excited for other people uh, to read Terry White's memoir, Coming Undone, uh, which is out this summer. I have already read it, but I found it, um, I found it incredible. It's, so it's Terry White, um, the editor of Empire Magazine, who, full disclosure, is a really good friend of mine. But actually, that's when, that's why I found it so surprising. I thought I knew it all. 
I thought I knew everything. I've been through the tough times with her and I thought I knew the whole story and it was still full of surprises and managed to avoid being a misery memoir while describing things that are truly harrowing and um, life-defining. And so I'm excited for people to read that and I hope they do. It's such an interesting and complicated area because I think, you know, between us, we know lots of people, in some cases, the same people who've written very, very personal books and you can be such a, a good friend of some over a long period of time and know so much about them and the weird, weird intimacy of sitting down and spending hours with them, or, you know, or days where they're like, it's almost as though they said, I'm going to tell you everything and you listen. And it's, it's extraordinary and sort of extraordinary as well that you're experiencing their story in that way at the same time as people yes, you've never met. Yes, it's that, that. That's a key point. It's that idea that you're reading the same as everybody else and you have this raft of knowledge that comes with it and you're still being surprised. And the other thing I really, really loved about Terry's book, and which is a really underrated quality in a book, is that it's written, unsurprisingly, as popular journalism in that it rips through, you know, it's pacey and it doesn't meander. It gets going. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. You know, you, you know the shape of it as you're reading it, which I think is so under things that you can you know just because something is traumatic and describes huge life events doesn't mean it needs to be long actually sometimes you need to just rip off the plaster and I think she's done that really really well I loved the pace of it I love that it didn't dick about you know um, and so I hope people read it it's terrific I'm really really excited for that book um, I'm really looking forward to reading that if looking forward is is the word um, I've gone on about it before but I've just read uh, Kathy Rensenbrink's uh, reading memoir which I think is coming out in the autumn and again I think because her father couldn't read when she was growing up and he learned to read late in life with help she has lots of work with quick reads and lots of work around literacy in prisons she's written something that is extraordinary the impact of it and the weight of it is in no way lessened by the fact that it's written to be accessible for everyone. It's still really vivid and immediate and funny and sad and moving. This and is a defining characteristic of Kathy as a person, though, as well as Kathy as a writer. She's so she's the least kind of elitist person imaginable. She's not a snob at all. She's not at all elitist. She's generous. And as you say, she has that background where her father couldn't read so well and her work uh, with quick reads that she would hate to think that somebody felt alienated by her writing or felt not good enough for her writing. That would be her worst thing. And that's true of her personality. She's very like that. You know, she's a very kind of egalitarian sort of a bird. This has become a Kathy Rensenbrink stan podcast and I am so here for it. Um, I love Kathy. I love she Kathy. She's is truly one of the good ones. Sally, which literary character would you most like to be looked down with? Uh, so this was a very easy one for me. Um, my favourite character of all time is Cadence Roth from Armistead Mopin's Maybe the Moon. Um, I don't think anybody writes women as well as Armistead Mopin, um, ironically. Um, he being a man. And Cadence Roth is the heroine of Maybe the Moon, which is one of his standalone novels. It's not a Tales of the City novel. Um, it's a self-contained standalone novel about um, a little person who, although it's it's thinly veiled, essentially, let's say for argument's sake, that she was inside the E.T. costume. Of course, it's a different film in the, in the book, but it's basically that she was inside the E.T. costume and she became this megastar inside the 
costume and nobody actually knows what she looks like on the outside. And she's a little person and a serious actress. And it's about her struggles in Hollywood to be recognised as a serious actress and not a tiny person in an ET costume. It's just terrific. I love her. She, as a character, she's that combination that I really relate with, which is super confident, but not assertive, um, really sure of herself, but um, not chatty. And I just loved her. She absolutely spoke to me and I recommend the book to everybody. She's astonishingly well-observed character. I don't think I've read that book since I was 19 and I ache for it and I'm going to have to track down a copy as soon as we finish because Armistead Mopan is just one of my favourite favourites. Um, I went to see him, um, Damien Barr's salon in Brighton and as soon as he came on stage, I just cried. <laughs> In a way that made no sense. And, you know, producer Dale was there, be like, you're all right, what's going on? What do you do? Like, I can't even tell you. It's it's a lot. <laughs> I, I've met him. I've met him too. And I had a similar reaction. I just think Armistead Mopin is one of those writers where if you love him, he really touches your life. He, he really matters to you. And the family, the kind of, uh, as he always says, you know, the, the chosen family in um, the Tales of the City novels, they become your family. In Cadence Roth, you are rooting for her. And the night listener, the characters in that become to really matter to you and I just think he does he's one of those writers like Nora Ephron who just feels like you know him he feels like he's in your squad and you do get overcome when you see him in the flesh what's the last book you read where you thought I could be locked down in this book in this universe with these people where do you like to hang oh, that's out? a really good question I suppose in a fictional world I'm always a real sucker for New York society. Uh, so I am reading, I've just finished reading a book about uh, Truman Capote's uh, black and white ball at the plaza in New York. And it's a book just about that party. And I'm a real sucker for that kind of um, New York society of writers and artists and bohemians and junkies and alcoholics and in that very kind of um, decadent retro way I'm terrible for it and I'm completely I'm, I'm completely aware of the awful side of it and the seediness of it like Andy Warhol's factory really disgusting in so many ways but I, I can't help myself you know I want to be at Studio 54 or I want to be at the plaza at the black and white ball I want to be in the factory even though I know Andy Warhol wasn't a very nice man I just I just lap up that world so anything anything relating to old New York and I'm all over it that Capote book sounds like utter heaven I mean it's salacious not a, a literary masterpiece or anything <laughs> you want salacious, salacious and that sort of thing yeah it's salacious and it's gossipy here we go it's called the party of the century the fabulous story of Truman Capote and his black and white ball. So the party of the century, like immediately, who doesn't want to read that book? Do you know what I mean? And it's by Deborah Davis, D-A-V-I-S. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Especially now, that is what I'm craving. I want, I want books about people dancing. I want books about people smoking indoors for fun. <laughs> Exactly that, right? You want to know where Frank Sinatra snuck off to in the, at the end of the black and white ball. You want to know where the ladies got their um, masks made for the black and white ball. It's just, it's got all that detail, which is just really enjoyable. And 
as I say, I'm just a sucker for old New York. And so any book that's kind of set in that world and Heartburn is, is just another example of that, that's kind of set in that world, I am, I am lost to it. I give myself over to it completely and then leave feeling quite kind of sad and bereft that I wasn't there. Huge thanks to Sally. Pretty honest, pretty iconic, and our Rainbow Queen are all out now, and they are filled with her trademark wit and wisdom. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for listening. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Eggcast. Follow us on social media at Whitebooked. I hope you're all keeping as safe and sane and well and cheerful as possible. Keep reading, and I will see you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.